Would you open your Bible tonight to the book of Luke? To begin with, we're going to continue on what I started last week about reasons that prayers aren't answered. It's no secret to anybody in religion, in Christianity, that a lot of prayers are not answered and a lot of people are discouraged. Even though, like Luke 18 and verse 1 says, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not give up, like the little widow woman, or not faint, not quit, not draw back. And a lot of people do because when they pray, they think it should happen right away, or if they don't see any dramatic results or any change in a little bit of time after they pray, they assume that God doesn't want to do it, or it won't happen, and then they go do something else to try to get some relief or some help or something. But prayers are not always answered. You know, he says men ought always to pray. Well, there are conditions that you have to meet in prayer. This is one of those subjects that has a lot of pieces and parts to it. You've got to put them all together. You can't isolate a Mark eleven twenty four here and think that it has to work because you prayed according to it. What things ever you desire when you pray, believe you have received it and you shall have it. Because while you can act like you have received it, if there are other conditions in your life that are out of order between you and God or you and somebody else, it still won't work. God is not obligated to answer anybody's prayers simply because somebody prayed. The bumper sticker says, prayer changes things. It can, but obviously it doesn't always because there's things wrong with the person praying. The first condition is a Godward condition last week that man's relationship with God is cut off. And that's one reason it's because of sin. We use Isaiah 59. He said, your sins and your iniquities have hid his face from you that he will not hear. When you contrast that with the prayer that Israel should want, when their benediction that he gave them in number six, is that he would cause his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. When his face shines upon them, he is looking at you, you're looking at him. There's an implied, accepted relationship here between two people. May he find us so in concert with him and in harmony with his will and his way that, as Jesus said, whatever you ask, you shall receive. Whatever you ask, you shall receive. And a lot of people say, I wish that was true. Well, it is true. But it doesn't work if there's sin, sinfulness, in a person's life. John 9, 31, we know that God heareth not sinners. Or Psalm 66 and verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, if I'm, if I'm aware that uh, some things I've been doing are not right, then God, the Bible says God will not hear me. Or if my attitude towards the word, just hearing the word is not good. If I dread hearing something that comes out of the Bible because it's going to come at me straight, unadulterated, and pure, it's not going to be watered down by man's to make me feel comfortable. It's just going to come straight at me. If I dread that and I don't want to hear that and I avoid going places where things like that are heard, then it's like Jeremiah 11 says, if you refuse to hear, or if you hearken, or if you refuse to hearken and you stop your ears, as he said in Zechariah 7, then he says, then when you pray, God will not hear you. In other words, if you don't want to hear him, he, doesn't, he won't hear you. But isn't that fair? Well, some of you think it is. That it is fair. That God has willing to open the doors of heaven. He's willing to save. He's willing to give. He's willing to... Ask and you shall receive. And there's unlimited. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Ask and, it, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. I mean, what more does he need to say to invite us to pray? But he also wants us to live in harmony with him. To crucify the flesh with all the sinful things that can separate us from God. And I think that's fair for him to ask it and to love his word and to want to hear it. How about, secondly, prayers aren't answered because of our faulty relationship with each other. That 
We have unforgiveness in relationships. We've been offended and we're easily offended. Human, human beings are easily offended. Most of them are, some aren't, but human beings are easily offended. Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, in Matthew's chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, pray like this. Our Father which art in heaven. Then he goes down and say, and forgive us our debts or our trespasses as we forgive our debtors or those who trespass against us. And what you're praying is, Lord, I want you to forgive me of everything that stands between you and I because I do want your face to shine upon me. I don't want you to hide your face from me. Like he said in Deuteronomy 30, I'll hide my face from them. But I want to keep the doors open unto you. Now, some of these mean people I'm surrounded with are really difficult. But I do not have the luxury of being unforgiving towards them because when I realize what you've forgiven me of, how ugly my life was and my sins were, and you're willing to forgive me all of that, God forbid that I wouldn't forgive anybody anything. May I take note of the example of Stephen, one of the martyrs in the church. Father, lay not this sin to their charge. Or even our Lord on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But the people who are talking about you, people who did you wrong, if they knew Jesus, if they were following Jesus and they knew him, they would never have done what they did to you. They would have never said those ugly things to you. They would have never taken you to court to sue you or stole one of your prize, prize whatever, your lawnmower or your, your shotgun or whatever it is. They wouldn't have done that if they had known Jesus. And a Christian's heart has to say, Father, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. And, and, and the, the sin that's against them, as, J, as Stephen said, Lord, lay it not to their charge. That's the kind of heart that God makes in us. He makes us to be forgiving people to see others in their sins as people who don't know what they're doing and to lift ourselves above what sin does to people. Let's make us fight and get bitter and ugly and, and evil and all of those kind of things. Jesus knew how important it was to forgive as it pertains to you praying. In Mark eleven twenty four, what things ever you desire when you pray, believe that you have them and you shall get them. And the very next verse, he says, and when you stand praying, Forgive, if you have aught against any. For if you will not forgive men what they've done against you, neither does your Father forgive you. It's a condition even for your forgiveness. How far you want to go with that? We'll turn one more time tonight to Matthew 18. I think this is one of the most sobering passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. This one in... <clears throat> Hebrews 10, the end of that, I think those are just sobering passages of Scripture. I'm sure you're familiar with the story that begins in verse 21 and goes through the end of the chapter. A man was a slave. He owed a lot of money. Some commentators say about 10 to $12 million in today's numbers. And the man to whom he owed that much money said, I want my money. The guy said, I don't have it. He said, well, I'll sell you and your family. He said, bear with me, man. And Jesus said he forgave him the whole debt. Twelve million bucks. He forgave him. You no longer owe me anything. You're free. You're free. That same man went out, and he, somebody that owed him, I think commentators say it's like one millionth of that, owed him $12. And he grabbed him by the throat, which was a custom be tough me to let somebody grab me by the throat and yank me around. But they took him by the throat and said, make this man pay. And he said the same thing, bear with me, I'll pay you back. And he wouldn't do it. Now, when the man who forgave him all that $12 million heard about it, he still had, and he, the picture's easy to see, he still had authority over that man because he said, bring him here. He said, you wicked servant. Remember this, Matthew 18 and verse 32, and his Lord, after that, he called him and he said to him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you desirest me or you asked me. Should not you also have compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on you? He's teaching us that one of the big deals in the Bible is relationships, good relationships. 
The first four Ten Commandments has to do with our relationship to God. The first four. And the last six has to do with our relationship with our parents and with each other. You read the end of Romans 13. It says this is what it's all about. Treat your neighbor as you would want to be treated. If you don't want to be lied to, don't lie. If you don't want somebody to steal from you, don't steal. If you don't want anybody to lead you on, don't lead anybody on. If you don't want anybody to take advantage of you, take advantage of nobody. You live like you want other people to live with you. And if you do, you'll do well. Some people call that the golden rule. Do unto others, you'd have others do unto you. For upon this, the law and the prophets hinge. This is what it's all about. It's about relationships. Unforgiveness is a mar or a flaw or a breaking of that rule. Unforgiveness means you have offended me, and I'm not going to let go of you. I'm not going to forgive you for what you've done. And you get bitter, you get mean, you get... Sometimes people get sick. They get ulcers, or they open up a door to other kinds of demonic captivity in their bodies that can be attributed in many cases of deliverance back to resentment and ill will towards other people, other countries, other nationalities, race problems. A lot of people are full of hate and resentment and ill will. A family member molested somebody or your, your daughter or your sister or maybe you. And it really has affected your adult life, at least mentally. You feel like you're less than good enough for anybody, and you have this insecurity and this mindset. You've been forgiven. But you must also forgive. I think a lot of people also need to forgive God because they blame God for why somebody died, why something didn't work, and they have been offended but the fact that God didn't respond to them the way they had, even though perhaps God saw the sin or some rebellion in their life, and that was the cause it didn't work, but men blame God. The storm, the accident, the whatever happened. I was praying with somebody in, in a deliverance situation many, many, many years ago. Well, one of the problems a person had was that very thing. They had resentment against God. They would never admit it because, well, shut your mouth to say that, but it was true. If God had done just what he was able to do, that we've been told he can do this and do that, if he had just done a little bit of that, I wouldn't have had this horrible memory. And a lot of people need to forgive God, let alone each other. Because when you find in a lot of people bad attitudes, People whose memory is so keen, they remember all the faults that so many people did. Yeah, well, he did this and she did that. I remember that. When you find people that are really quick to point out all of these kind of things with bad attitude or they're resentful, picky, fault-finding people, backbiters, tailbearers, if you could sort through that, if you were as God only can do it, but if you could see what he sees, you would probably see people who are resentful about somebody or something in their life, and they've never let them go of it. It haunts them. It follows them around. It controls their demeanor. And they're not at peace. You'll find that too. They're not at peace. They're easily ticked off. They fall easily. And they're touchy and things of that sort. Now, if I'm talking to anybody here, you need to listen to what I'm saying because it is true. The peace that God brings requires us to be at peace with each other. I don't care what somebody does to us. I've been offended just like, well, I've never been offended as a preacher, but when I was growing up, I was. Never had anybody say anything bad about me, but I know some of you have. One thing you have to do, there comes a time, you have to let that roll off your back and forgive these people. They don't know Jesus. They never had a revelation. I don't care what church they go to, how long they've been sitting in the church you pastor. They've never had a revelation of Jesus Christ to their heart to see their need, their personal need, to forgive. And when you break off in the little groups and you start discussing and you're talking and you just keep bringing it up, it's like listening, if I can say it this way, it's like listening to an ultra-conservative talk show. All it does is make you mean and bitter about somebody. Whenever the subject comes, well, I'll tell you one thing about those, and they mention some politician, blah, 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 blah. That's not ours to do. I've done enough of that that I've learned this. I don't need that. That's poison. 
And Jesus has got something much, much better for us than stuff like that. But we've got to be willing to forgive. And he says that that's what we have to do. And then I finished last week, thirdly, with when we pray, a lot of people's prayers aren't answered because they don't pray in the name of Jesus. They pray in the name of him. Uh, we pray in the one whose name is above all names. Amen. That's not what it said. His name is Jesus. There's one name above every name, one name given amongst men whereby men must be saved. You get your prayers answered, deliverance, whatever. It's the name of Jesus. You find this in John chapter 14, 13, chapter 15, and verse 16, and chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. Jesus specifically says, if you ask the Father anything in my name, one time he said, I will do it. Another time he says, he will do it. She's talking about the same one. Now, fourthly tonight, turn to 1 John 5. A lot of prayers are not answered because the prayer is not the will of God. The prayer is not the will of God. 1 John 5, verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we have desired of him. I wonder how many people really believe that. I mean, really are convinced of that verse. I know most of you can quote that, or you've heard it enough that you're pretty well familiar with those words, but how many people believe it? Because it is a key and an answer to why a lot of people's prayers aren't answered. But if you're going to ask God for anything, you have to ask that's according to his will. Uh, just to use an old line I've used for years, up in Indianapolis back in, in the 70s when I was teaching a weekly meeting up there. A lady came forward one night after teaching on faith. They were really encouraged, I guess. And she came up and she said, I want you to agree with me about something. I think then I said, sure, without regard, what are we going to agree about? Because how can two walk together except to be agreed? I mean, how can we be in the same ballpark if I'm not sure of it and you are? And I said, well, what is you want me to agree with? She said that Oral Roberts will start a university here in Indianapolis. See, he had one out in Tulsa. He wanted Oral Roberts to build a school in Indianapolis. And I said, well, I said something like this. I said, do you believe that that's God's will? She said, well, why wouldn't it be? Well, see, she just assumed that you can just ask that because it's a good thing. If it was good out there and all the good she sees coming from that, why wouldn't it be a good thing to have it? Well, because it may not be his will to have it in Indianapolis. I think I offended her. I think when I said something like, well, I don't know if I can believe that or not, because I personally don't know that that's what God wants to do. If it is, he didn't tell me. I'm out of sync with that particular will of God. I don't know if he wants to do that or not. How can I just say, yes, in the name of Jesus, we agree together. Can I do that? Can I pray like I believe? But what betrays me? My heart, my conscience. All the time I'm praying in the name of Jesus, I'm thinking, this is nuts. If nuts is not the right word, this is contrary to the will of God. How do I know? He, he might. But I don't know that he wants to do that. But we're so accommodating with each other. We're afraid we'll be so offended because Christians are easy to offend. We just pray anyway, and they feel happy, and they're glad that you're such a spiritual being, and off they go. I want you to pray with me, Brother Tom. I spent my last $10. How much are lottery tickets? Are they $2? Does anybody know? <laughs> let's assume, I don't know either, but maybe they're $2 a piece. Maybe they're 5 But let's play like they're $2 a piece. And somebody comes up and says, Brother Hampton, I had this dream last night. And I was so sure this morning. I said, now, Lord, if that's you, I put the fleece out. I said, Lord, if, if this is you, have a squirrel run across my deck. And there it was. So I went downtown. I took my last $10. I was going to buy some flour and some milk today to make something for dinner night. But 
I'm just so sure this is God. I bought five lottery tickets. I want you to agree with me in the name of Jesus, like you taught, in the name of Jesus, that I'm going to win the lottery. Well, how much is it? Well, it's only $160 million this week, but that's enough. <laughs> that's enough. Could you agree with her? Could you say, yes, Father, in the name? Let's hold hands, sister. In the name of Jesus. And don't forget your tithe. But in the name of Jesus. <laughs> no, that's an old line, too. But you couldn't do that. You couldn't pray something like that. I couldn't. If you came to me and asked me to pray with you about winning the lottery, I'd say, you know, I don't think we even ought to be doing that. That's gambling. That's taking your money that you earned and trying to get something that you didn't earn. You're trying to take somebody else's foolish money. It's not the way we live. It's not the way God has assigned us to have income in this life. They might be offended. Well, I'll listen to you preaching. You said one night years ago, 1974, it was a hate. It was the busiest time of my life. A fellow started coming to the meetings in Lexington. He got all fired up. He came in halfway in a faith series. And he went home, paid all of his bills. He wrote checks for everything he owed. Sealed the envelope and said, in the name of Jesus, like a man taught, in the name of Jesus, it is done. And the money comes in. Well, he had visitors all week. <laughs> Official looking people knocking on his door and calling him. What's this? You sent a check in for, you don't have any money. And I think he said something like, oh yeah, it'll be there. Make a good confession. So he made a good confession, like and went to jail. Who taught you that? Here it comes, Brother Tom. And I remember when I first came to this town years ago, I can't remember the girl's name, a young lady. She too, she wrote all these checks, paid off her car and every bills and debt she had. And the bank called her father in about five days and said, Mr. So-and-so, we got a problem. Your daughter has shot the moon here. She went for the whole nine yards. And her dad called her up, and of course, that was his first question. Who taught you that? Who told you you could do that? Well, see, I can tell you this, that if the Lord leads you, if that was a special revelation to your heart, he could do that, couldn't he? But for you to just assume that he wants to do that because you heard what he said, doesn't work like that. At least I've never seen it work like that. I've done some things that people thought was foolish, and it worked. And I wouldn't say, you got to do I laid hands on a stove once. I laid hands on a dead, I mean a hammer dead stove. Laid hands on it and God actually fixed the thing. I didn't look at, see if, what it looked like behind there. If the wires that were all corroded and broken, I didn't look to see if they were back in place. All I knew was that the burner worked. It didn't work before. It started working. Well, I wouldn't say, all right, everybody go home, lay hands on your stove, on your toaster, on your water pump, your water heater, just whatever you got in there. That, well, could he? But see, you have to be clear in your heart, yourself personally. You've got to be clear in your heart as to the will of God for you in your life, in your family. Some things are clear. Healing is clear. I don't have to say, now, Lord, do you really want to heal me? Well, he's already said he does. Some things in the promises that God has made, that's his will. Wouldn't you say that when God promises, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, wouldn't that be his will to save? And if the same verse that says he will forgive you all your iniquities, the same verse says, and he will heal you of all your diseases, is that his will? Well, of course it is. And you can start reading from that, renewing your youth. There's a time that you might need that. Satisfying your mouth with good things. That's not a bad promise. That really is a good promise. For your mouth could be your adornment. The Hebrew word can mean more than just one thing. He can satisfy you in lots of ways that you're not being satisfied right now in this world. And maybe you're afraid to ask God because you're not sure that he wants to do that. Or you might be presumptuous. And yet, if you read the Bible, if you just stay with what you've been hearing and check it out for yourself, let God speak to your own heart personally as to what his will is, and he'll show you just as clearly as he shows a lot of us, that it is God's will for you to be well. It is God's will for you to be healthy. 
It is God's will for you to ask and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. God wants you to be joyful. He doesn't want you down in the dumps and defeated and all of that. That's not his will for you. People who are not accustomed to getting prayers answered have that kind of theology because somebody taught them that. Well, you go to church. You're a church member. You're a member in good standing. You've been saved for many, many years. Surely, if anybody was going to pray and get a response from God, you would. And you prayed. In fact, you lead the prayer meeting, and you prayed for some things, and it didn't work. So you can't just say that it'll work because you ask. Then came that deadly statement that crept into the church because of unbelief. And it's, if it be thy will. I'm really not getting tired of saying this to remind you of it, but I know this is true, that most Christians, most of them, not some of them, most Christians are not sure what the will of the Lord is when they pray. They hope it works. They've been taught that, well, you should just pray. Men ought always to pray, our text said. So just pray without regard to what are you praying about and do you really believe that when you pray, God will do it? Are you convinced and persuaded that what you're praying for, God will do it? Or are you trying by prayer to get him to do it? Because that's what most people do. They have prayer meetings. Let's get a hold of God here about this. Well, let's find out what he says first, and then let's ask according to his will. I mean, let's just do it that way. Let's just pray, and, and God show us what we're supposed to do, and let's pray that. I think we should find out what the will of God is first. Is it God's will that we live a good life? Are you sure? Look how many people don't. Look how many religious people don't. Is it God's will for you to prosper and be in health? Is it? Because there are lots and lots of books in modern Christian books that are against that. And if you keep Listen to all this stuff on a Christian radio and listen to all these people. Somebody's going to talk you out of the truth. Amen. Well, I'll say that because I believe that. You have to be careful. Let me ask you all a question. Is salvation God's will? Now, how do you know that? Because what does salvation mean? What does it include? Does it just mean, as some think, salvation means born again, sins forgiven, period. That's it. Salvation doesn't mean all the different ways it's translated. It's translated healed or healing a lot. Did God say in the 91st Psalm, verse 16, that he would show you his salvation? What does that mean? Show you his new birth? He's never been born again. God doesn't have to. He's eternal. You're the one that has to be born again. But since you're born again, he will show you what belongs to you, your inheritance. See, oh, we all get some inheritance over in heaven. That is true. But now in this world, while you live, you'll be blessed. That belongs to you also. That's part of his salvation. Showing you things to come is part of his saving ways with you. Delivering you from evil is part of salvation. Opening your eyes to see wondrous things in his word is part of salvation. And the Bible says work out your salvation from the time you're born again until the Lord comes. You've got a life to live and the stages of growth and improvement is what salvation is all about. Didn't he say in 1 Peter 1, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls? When does faith end? When you go up or when you quit breathing? You win either way. That's the end of your faith. You live by faith. Now, you don't live by faith in heaven. It's a different world. It's a different realm. But while you're here, God will bless you. That's his saving ways. He should reveal his saving ways to you. We sing this song, And to him that ordereth his conversation aright, Will I, will I, will I, will I, Wait a minute, the record's up. Will I, will I, will I what? Show what? Oh, I've already been born again. 
Well, good. Everybody needs to be because this is the beginning of the journey. And all the things that line your way, all the promises that are in him, yes and amen, they belong to you for his glory. That's your salvation. God has saved you from sin, saved you from the effects of sin, and eventually will save you eternally till you no more sin around. It's God who does this. But you got to know that. I know that. But you need when you pray is to pray according to his will. Is it God's will to save your children? Are you sure? Is it God's will to save your children? It's interesting. It is, at least to me, because I study about that stuff. Is it God's will for your children to be saved? I think he said that in Acts chapter 16, didn't he? What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. To me, there doesn't need to be another verse in the entire Bible. One is enough. One verse of the Bible is like a crumb of children's bread. It does it. It gets the job done. Can I pray then for the salvation of my whole house? How about my grandchildren? They're not in my house, are they? They're my seed. Well, if I can't, he needs to tell me I can't because I already have. <laughs> I do. I'm not Abraham, but talking about a nation that sprang from his loins. Well, everything that belongs to me and came from me, I want them all in heaven. Amen. And I'm not willing to let the devil take any of them. Fifthly, goes along with fourth, according to his will. Fifthly, his faith is missing. The reason people's prayers aren't answered is because the element of faith. They're not asking in faith. Turn to James 1 for the 5,000th time. James chapter 1 and verse 6. The invitation to pray in James chapter 1 was in verse 5. If any man lack wisdom, ask. Ask whom? Ask God. What does God do if you ask? No, it means if it be his will, he giveth. Doesn't say that, does it? He said, ask God, and he said, who giveth to all men liberally and doesn't upbraid you like the radio preachers do for asking. But here's a condition, a major condition that is seldom, seldom met in Christendom. And the reason it's seldom met is because most preachers don't know how to teach it because they've never lived it themselves. And that is the truth. When Jesus said only a few are going to make it in the kingdom, I'm thinking of just a few people that really are preaching the whole counsel of God. I'm not isolating myself. I'm just saying there's not a lot of people in this world that are saying what you need to hear. They're saying things that make people feel good, but it's not necessarily what you need to hear. For example, only a prayer that is prayed in faith will be effective or effectual. Because he said in verse 6, let him ask in faith without wavering. For he that wavereth, that is a word doubt, doubting, uncertain. It means when you pray and you're uncertain, you're trying to get answers, but you don't know if you will or not. And so you're trying to get answers by just desperate pleading with God, but you're not really sure he'll do it. Or even if he wants to, you're really not believing anything. You're hoping. And here's what he said. It's clear. Hardly anybody preaches this, but it's true. Let him ask in faith without doubting, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed so forth. What's the next verse say? Let not that man think what? Verse 7. Well, let not that man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. Now, would I be right if offensive to be sure, but would I be right if I said, well, the reason a lot of people who pray don't get answers is because they didn't believe it would work anyway. That's true, isn't it? So what's the need of people then? To be taught how to believe. And yet they'll fall asleep on you while you're doing it. I've been here too many years, not here, but I've been around a long, long time. And people assume they have faith because they go to church. They have faith because they're a member somewhere. Or they contribute somehow to the money or the help or the 
mission fields, and they assume that that's faith. Faith is accepting what God said is true and acting like it's true. Faith is taking your will and embracing his word, and you hold on to it until his word is manifested. And when it's manifested, you don't need to believe it anymore because you can see it. But until you see it, you've got to believe it. In fact, your salvation works that way. If you can believe God for nothing else and everything else as if it be thy will, maybe your eternal security, maybe your eternal happiness and home is if it be thy will. Maybe God is not sure about that either. All you preachers in here, when you tell people the reason things aren't working the way they should is because people aren't believing. You better get ready for an attack. Because again, people assume they're believers. I have read books and listened to tapes and taken notes and been to meetings. And did you come away from there believing what you heard? Oh, I heard, I heard. And yet whenever they pray, their prayer is almost like a, a pleading with God. Oh, God. It's not, Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm trusting you to do what you've said in your word. How do I know what you've said? Let me quote it back to you. I think it's Isaiah 43, 26. Put me in remembrance. Declare thou that you may be justified. And so you begin to speak according to his word unto him. And you're saying, Father, you have said, I receive. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I have it right now. I have it right now. This is the confidence I have in you. I have it right now. And I'm going to start thanking you for something I can't see or feel or anything else. But I believe you heard me. I believe I have it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Somebody said, what are you so thankful about? God answered my prayer. What did you ask for? And you tell him, you say, I don't see it. Oh, you will. Because he that promised cannot lie. Remember that? Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie. Neither is he the son of man that he should repent. If he said it, he will do it. If he spoke it, he'll make it good. Isn't that right? Or so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It will not return to me, boy, but it will accomplish that which I please. It will prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. If you don't know what he sent, then you can't pray the prayer of faith. You can't pray the prayer of faith. You can try and you can mean it real well, but you just can't pray it. Jesus said, when you pray, believe. That's what he said, Mark eleven twenty four. When you pray, believe. Matthew 21 and 22 says, and all things whatsoever you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. Then is it not True that one of the reasons people aren't getting answers to their prayer and no response from God is because they really aren't convinced he's going to do it anyway. But they think by much praying, they'll get it. Now that takes us this much praying or this continual invoking of God for it. It takes us to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't mind, would you turn there again? Matthew chapter 6. Much praying. Matthew 6 and verse 7. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions or vain repeatings. Do not keep repeating over and over and over like a mantra, a certain prayer that somebody wrote down years ago and told the church that as a ritual of that church, say this prayer. Now, the best example of this is Catholicism. Catholics are noted for vain repetitions. They have these little beads that they carry around. They're called the rosary. And the way the beads, the way the rosary is made, it has certain points in there which you pray a different prayer. But they pray these same prayers over and over and over again. It's like somebody said, if you will pray this, you'll begin to get results. See, vain repetition means wordiness. A lot of words, a lot of things that you say, but you really don't expect to happen, but you are just much talk without any content to it. You're just repeating what somebody said. It's like saying the Lord's Prayer. 
know, Jesus taught us to pray that way. He said, and when you pray, pray this. And so a lot of people think if they pray the Lord's Prayer, or if the Catholics say the Hail Marys all day long, that somehow this will convince God or bring the solution into your life. Now, how ignorant is that? And yet, there's not a handful of Catholics in this world that you could ever convince that what they're doing is wrong. They don't know what the Bible said. I remember after I got saved, I tried to talk to my dad once about the Bible. He'd been a Catholic his whole life and knew absolutely nothing about the Bible except something about a passage that says, up on this rock, I'll build my church. And he was convinced that Catholicism, its origins, its practice, its leadership, its doctrines were the only church. And his mother, which is my granny, my little granny, she believed if you weren't a Catholic, you were going to hell. I used to hear them talking, because I went to church with my mother, you know, in the Protestant, the protesting church, the Christian church. And I knew what they thought. I mean, they talked loud enough around me as a little boy. I knew what they were saying. God had his hand on my heart even in those young days because I remember thinking, I don't want what you all got because they'd go into church and do all that genuflecting and, and the holy water and making the cross and go through all this beating and stuff and dominoes and biscuits and they'd say all that stuff and they come out of church just cussing and ranting and raving about who didn't and who, and I thought, this is nothing. This is nothing. I was a kid. I mean, I was a little kid and I knew this is nothing. I said, they ought to go sing some hymns like my mama's church does. Then the older I got, I realized this is nothing either. This is nothing either. But vain repetitions, it's just a lot of wordiness, a lot of talk. Just repeating the same prayer over and over again, a lot of Christians do. They ask for the same thing every day. They ask for the same thing over and over and over again. Jesus said, when you pray, believe. Let me ask you a question. Is there ever a time that a man can pray for the same thing more than once? You think Jesus would ever do that? I found this to that. Now, in all these years I'm doing what I'm doing, I saw something today I've never seen before. Now, it's just the Lord's, that's the way he can do things. Let me show you what it is. Matthew 26. Matthew 26 and verse 44. This, you know, the story is. Jesus was in the garden, and he's getting ready to go to the cross. Verse 36, in Matthew 26, verse 36 and following, he said, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And then we begin to see something about Jesus we've never seen before. In all of his walk, for three and a half years, we never saw things happening to him that started happening to him in the garden. I'll get to these in just a minute, like verse 37, 38. Sorrowful and very heavy, very heavy, and exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Did he know his time had come? What awaited him? Did he? Let me ask you a question. In verse 44, and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying what? Same words. I never saw that before. So I thought, now I'm in a dilemma. <laughs> what am I going to do now? Because I've pounded hard for all these years about this repeating of prayers, and I still will. Because what you see here is not a man going through a ritual. This is not a man praying some Hindu or some Mohammedan prayer or, or some Catholic prayer pastor. This is a different thing. We see something here we've never seen before in its reality. That's the human nature of Jesus. You all know that he was a man. Put your finger right there. Look at Hebrews 7 for just a minute. You need to see Jesus as a man. Even as you see him as the son of God, you also need to see him as the son of Adam. He wrestled. And indeed here, he struggled. Does your Bible say that his struggle was so intense in the garden that God had to send angels to strengthen him? So we don't see this picture of Jesus who returned from all night in Galilee and just walks and says, okay, 
Boys, I want y'all to pray. I'm getting ready to go to the cross. It's going to be a horrible time, but uh, there's no problem. I can do it. But he took certain disciples and he went across the, what they call it, the Kidron Valley up on the Mount of Olives, away from Jerusalem, on the east side, up there. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to look over in Jerusalem and say, I know where he's coming back because he's coming back when Jesus returns. He'll return right there on the Mount of Olives. And it'll split and divide and it'll be a wonderful time. You wait and see. I hope you see it. And he went over there and he prayed and he began to labor. When did we ever see him like this throughout all the Bible? When did you ever see Jesus like this? Depressed? Anguish? Agony? Exceeding sorrowful? I mean, I can put it in human terms I, because I, I know what that would feel like in my own little dimension. And you would too. The times you struggled with something, didn't know what to do. And oh, God. Because being human, we're subject to pressure. Doesn't he say in chapter 4 of Hebrews and verse 15, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points. Was in all points. All points what? Tempted like we are. You think there was any fun to it? He himself taught us to pray, asked that we enter not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Didn't he say that? Well, there's something about the effect that that part of your life, when it comes, there's something about the effect that it has on you, which it's a real wrestling match. You've got this to deal with. Jesus had to. Remember, he was a lamb. He said, nobody can take my life. I give it. Now, the incarnate God, God was in Christ, wasn't he? But there was also the picture of the man, Jesus, just like you and me. Suffered the same things we suffer. Felt the same way that we feel. And we see this picture of him in the garden. And you can relate to this. We see him in the garden. Look at Hebrews 5, verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, what's that mean? Was he not a man? He was not someone that couldn't be touched. Could he be tempted? You can't tempt God. How do you tempt Jesus? Because he was also a man. I think he can handle this. Jesus is the only person who ever lived that had a dual nature. God and man. That's why he couldn't die spiritually, because God can't die. It was as a man that he paid the price shed his blood for all of our diseases and stuff. You can't do that on God. You put it on a man. He did that. And God did not go to hell and suffer. But anyway, back to this. Who in the days of his flesh, when he, Jesus, had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. That's Jesus. The man, verse 8, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Our ears don't take that well. Our religious Christian ears don't handle those two verses very well at all. Because we don't want to see him as a man. We want to see him as the one on the throne and walks on the water and raise the dead and turn the water into wine. We don't want to see him crying with loud tears and suffering. But he did. Didn't he? Listen, if he was not human, he had no life to give. But because God made himself a body, the body had a life, the body had a soul, it had a will, and it must be commanded by God to go to the cross on the behalf of man. He was a man as well as God. Again, we don't like to hear that, but it's true. Look at verse 9. And being made perfect, that just doesn't fit. There's three verses right there. In the days of his flesh, though he were a son, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to those who join church. You know who he's the author of salvation of? Boy, it goes further than raising your hand. There's more to it than attending church meetings. There's more to it than reading your Bible once in a while or carrying it to church 
or having sincere and earnest desires. There's more to it than that. It's obey. What do you say in Jeremiah? Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. You've got to have faith. Now go back to Matthew 26, and I might add a verse to this. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, he was made in the fashion of a man. He was like us, in other words. There is a human experience tonight in the Godhead. Our high priest, who is interceding for us tonight, has had a human experience. God knows how you feel. He's been here. See, we don't like to hear that, but it's got to be true. God can't die. God is eternal. It's impossible for God to die. What about the man Jesus? God in him can't die either. That's how he was raised from the dead. It was God that raised him from the dead. Even Jesus said, I will raise it from the dead. The same thing. But the body could be offered as a sacrifice, couldn't it? It had real blood in it. Acts 26 calls it the blood of God. It was real blood, real air, real breathing, real pain, real sorrow, real suffering, real tears, real hunger, real agony that Jesus felt when he was on this earth. If we ever get the picture, if the revelation of the meaning of all of that comes in our hearts, it'll be easy to forgive people of anything they've ever done and to rejoice in the midst of dark days. It'll be easy to sing when you're not happy. Everything will change because he watches over us to keep us. He knows how we feel, and he is ever living to supply our needs and intercede for us. I'm going to make it. I don't deserve it. But he deserved it, and he gave me the faith to believe in him. And Therefore, what God gave to him, he's also given to me. We're joint heirs. And in Matthew 26, it said in verse 37, and he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful. These words have the idea of depression, to be on the verge of being overwhelmed. That's what the Greek words imply. There are several of them. To be severely grieved, that's to be sorrowful. And you ask yourself the question, why would Jesus be going through this? We see him praying and coming back. His disciples pray. And then we see him going back the second time. He prays again. And there's this stirring and anguish in his heart. And he goes back the third time. He says, pray. You know what? When he connected, when that decision was made, it was all over. He's calm. Because right after this, the Bible says, here came Judas and kissed him and said, Master and Lord. Jesus didn't fight after that. He was like a lamb led to slaughter. He was at peace. The same way you and I will be when we make up our minds to quit fighting all the things that come in our life and just trust God. Just trust Jesus. Let him take care of it. And everything will be just fine. Because that's what he did. He trusted his father. That he would be raised from the dead, and he was. Again, well, that's strange sounds. But Jesus did have a will, didn't he? Was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself? And did Jesus not say, you can't take my life, I'm going to give my life? Well, you can't give God. It's his flesh. The days of his flesh. As a man, he did this. As a man, he did that. As a man, he did this. I can relate to him like that because I know what it's like to be a man and a human being. You know, there's other places, for example, in Luke 22, 43, and there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And verse 44 says, and being in agony. Here comes the angel. And being in agony or anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. Was there something going on in his physical human body? Hebrews says in chapter 12, have you resisted sin like he did? Now, he wasn't sinning, but he resisted something, didn't he? Wasn't there a struggle going on with Jesus in the garden? And he didn't cave into it. Well, don't you either. 
Have you resisted unto your blood striving against sin or against the things the devil's trying to throw in your way? In John 12, 27, John said, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto the world. The world troubled means agitated. The Son of God, the Son of God, exceeding sorrowful, troubled, in agony, agitated, wrestling. I would say in a condition like that, I will give him three times. He prayed the same prayer three times. I wouldn't want to think of what I'd have done. Here came Judas said, when you got up from there, your decision had better be that you're going to trust God all the way because you're fixing to die one bad death. You're going to be mocked and scourged. You're going to be beat and spat upon. You're going to be talked about ugly all the way from this court to that court. And while they take you to the hill, they're going to spit on you while you're walking up through there. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God. He played like he was God. That's what you get, we thought. He's an imposter. And then, lo, whenever the earth got dark, even that Roman soldier said, this was the Son of God. It's an amazing and a wonderful story about your Savior and your Redeemer, what he did for us, and we live as though we could we. I'm saying the world lives as we could care less. Because somebody in teaching has taken away all the hard parts, the hand of the plow, the effort, the strive to enter in, the agonized. Somebody's taken all of that out of our lives and told us that there's not much to it, so it doesn't have a lot of meaning. Just go to church and, you know, do a few things and you're all right. No, you're not. This is when it comes to praying, I guarantee we're all going to have a time where we need to pray. And when it comes to that, you want to make sure you want to make real sure that your heart is right with him, that you believe what he's saying, and that you pray according to his word, Father, in the name of Jesus, I receive what you said. Tell him what he said, and then, like James 1 says, release your prayer. That's the only thing that works. There's no other prayer you can pray. Let me show you just one more time. Mark 11. And verse 24, it could not be more clear than this. You know this. You know it by heart. What things soever you desire, whatsoever mean, whatever. When you pray, what do you do? Believe what? Believe that you have what you prayed for. I know I take my time every time I get to this. I love this verse of Scripture. Many a dark day in my life, this is all I had. I'm here, standing here tonight because this works. And some of my children are doing well because this works. And all of them will eventually do well. What things soever you desire, Jesus said, when you pray, and you should, Men ought always to pray. And when you pray, believe that you have received it. And what does he say? You'll get it. Then why is it that people aren't getting what they're asking for? Are you afraid to say it? Why is it that people aren't getting what they're asking for? They're not believing it. Amen. Close your Bible. Father, in the name of Jesus, minister to our spirits even now, Lord. Grant, as only you can, a revelation of the reality of these words to our hearts. Take away our struggle, Lord, with whether or not it means that. Make us to see it. Those here tonight whose minds are loafing, just sauntering along, not really giving heed to the signs before them. I pray that you will open their eyes and show them what you're saying. Especially, Lord, our young folks. That in Jesus' name, 
that it would become vital. It would become their very life. The very reason they have hope or joy. The very reason they have expectation. Cause us to so live like that. That truly the world and those around us would take note that we have been with Jesus. That he has affected us like that. That as he is, so are we in this present world. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.